0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to your San Diego News Fix. I'm Christy Totten. San Diego is getting closer to the orange tier, but we'll talk to reporter Jonathan Wozen about when that might happen. Then, columnist Charles T. Clark shares his take on reparations. First, the news. tri Santa Ana winds produced hot weather from the mountains to the sea on Wednesday, setting temperature records in San Diego, Vista, and Chula Vista. The heat will continue on Thursday, creating balmy weather for the San Diego Padres season opening game at Petco Park against the Arizona Diamondbacks. The temperature is expected to be 78 degrees when play gets underway at 1.10 p.m. Wednesday's high hit 88 degrees at the San Diego International Airport, breaking the record for March 31st by 4 degrees. The previous record was set in 1945. Vista reached 89 degrees. Vista reached 89 degrees, breaking the record of 85 that was set in 2011, and Chula Vista got to 88, breaking a record of 86 set in 2003. San Diego officials may try to revive Measure C, a March 2020 ballot measure that would have generated nearly $7 billion for convention center expansion, homelessness programs, and road repairs. The San Diego City Council is scheduled next Tuesday to take the legal position that the ballot measure was approved despite receiving support from less than two-thirds of voters, which was thought to be the approval threshold at the time of the vote. The council may also direct City Attorney Mara Elliott to file a validation lawsuit that would ask the Supreme Court to determine the fate of the measure. If Measure C ends up being successful, it would expand the city's waterfront convention center and increase funding for homelessness programs and street repairs. Fewer than one-third of registered voters in San Diego County say they have signed petitions to recall California Governor Gavin Newsom, but 40% of people asked said they would support removing the governor from office. According to a new Survey USA poll commissioned by the San Diego Union-Tribune and ABC10 News, 30% of respondents said they signed the recall petition. That includes 50% of Republicans and 17% of Democrats. If the recall proposal qualifies for the state ballot, 40% of San Diego County registered voters polled said they would vote to remove Newsom from office, and 35% said they would vote against the effort. The result represents a statistical dead heat because the survey had a margin of error of 5.6 percentage points. Now that San Diego County is in the red tier of California's reopening blueprint, the next tier is orange. In the orange tier, bars can reopen outdoors, Bowling alleys and card rooms can reopen with limited capacity. And businesses that are already open can accommodate more people. Jonathan Wozen is the UT's biotech reporter. Jonathan, San Diego County didn't qualify for Orange this week, but when might that happen?
1: It could happen next Wednesday is basically the long story short. So the state has a requirement that any county has to be in a tier for at least three weeks before it can advance. We've been in the red tier for the past two weeks, so we've got at least one more week in red no matter what. Uh, We'll also need to have a case rate, probably a case rate below six, so 5.9 and lower. Uh, The reason I say that is because sometime in the next week, and this is where the tiers start to get a little confusing, but basically the, the cutoffs from one tier to the next are based on case rates, so how many COVID positive samples are coming up compared to the population. Uh, That cutoff actually changes as the state does a better job of vaccinating people in disadvantaged communities. So once we get to 4 million doses in those communities, that'll actually change the cutoffs and it'll change it. So where we need to have a case rate of below six. Uh, The past couple of weeks, we've already had case rates below six. So we would just need to have that one more time. Because once that happens, the state's gonna look back in time and see that our case rates have been relatively low, and that, that would allow us to jump to orange uh, at you know, Wednesday, April 7th, at, at the earliest.
0: So LA County and Orange County have reached the orange tier, but this is happening at a time when the head of the CDC is saying that COVID cases are on the rise sort of nationally. She's actually said she's scared about it. Um, you know. Is this mixed messaging, or what? What should we be doing?
1: It, it's a little bit of mixed messaging. I, you know, I think what we're seeing around the country right now is that cases are beginning to go up a little bit, and that's happening especially in Michigan, and especially in parts of the country where reopening is happening. Number one, and number two, you're also seeing the rise of this faster spreading uh, variant of the virus called B one one seven. It was first seen in the United Kingdom. We know it's here in California, here in San Diego. It it likely accounts for at least half of new coronavirus cases at this point and eventually will be almost all of new coronavirus cases, uh, certainly by early May is what we're hearing from local researchers. So because that variant is faster spreading and because there is some evidence that it may also be a little more likely to put you in the hospital, at least among unvaccinated people, you know, I am hearing a lot of messages around the need for continued caution, even as we are reopening. You know, I think one thing to keep in mind is that a whole lot of older adults in San Diego have been vaccinated. So people 65 and up, I think at least 80% have been vaccinated, especially in, in the South Bay region of the county. So the people who are most vulnerable are you know, many of them do have some level of immunity, but because a lot of folks haven't been vaccinated yet, you know, for the region as a whole, you know, I, I think there, there's clear evidence that we need to be careful at this particular moment because we are at a kind of a crossroads where there could be a bit of a, a surge or a bump in cases, uh, hopefully not as much when it comes to hospitalization, but that's something that could be happening in the coming in the coming weeks despite the fact that things feel relatively stable right now.
0: I know we touched on this before, but just how um, effective the vaccines are against the new variants—is there any news there?
1: Sure. Well, the good news when it comes to this particular variant, this UK variant, is that current vaccines seem to work very well. They seem to work about as well against this this variant as they do against the strain first spotted in uh, in Wuhan, China. So. This isn't the most concerning variant when it comes to vaccines. Really, the thing that we need to do to get out in front of this variant is to vaccinate as many people as possible. That's basically true for the other variants as well. uh, But there is a little more evidence, for example, with the South Africa strain, that some of the vaccines are less effective against that strain. So we've seen that with the AstraZeneca vaccine. And there's evidence of that with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine as well. Recently, I think last week, the, the county announced the first couple of cases of the, the Brazil strain, strain first found in Brazil, which I think we talked about in the previous episode. And, and there seems to be evidence that that strain has some properties that can make it a little less sensitive to vaccines, although not quite as much as the South African strain. So the, the bottom line takeaway here is that you know, there are different strains. Some of them are a little more concerning than others when it comes to what they mean for vaccines, but it appears that the vaccines to different degrees work against these strains and that it would be helpful to get as many people vaccinated as possible. And the companies making these vaccines are already beginning to design and test updated versions. So I think we can expect that, you know, in the years ahead as we're continuing to control this virus.
0: California has an effort underway to vaccinate the most disadvantaged areas in the state. How does that affect um, San Diego, and, and how is that effort going overall?
1: Yeah, so the overall uh, message or, or program at the state level is to make sure that disadvantaged, the most disadvantaged regions of the state are getting actually more of the vaccine to help make up for the fact that these are places that have been hit hard and that historically have, you know, have uh, you know factors that we associate with with poor health outcomes. So, basically, when the state's figuring out where to send vaccine, they make sure that 40 percent of their supply goes into the zones that they call these healthy place index regions. There's a metric of socioeconomic factors that, that tend to track with health. So that's true across the state. That's true in, in San Diego uh, as well. So, and I, I think you know at the county level, we've we've seen. The county place a number of vaccine sites in the South Bay, for example, uh, we've seen them partner with local organizations and community health workers to make sure that they're reserving spots for people in hard hit communities certain minority and refugee communities. You know some of the vaccine sites that are popping up now are um, only offering doses to folks who live in a particular zip code And, and some of these are places where you actually don't need an appointment, but you do need some evidence that you live or work in that area. So if you have you know, an ID or some type of paperwork. So, you know, we are seeing those things happen. We know that in the, the South region, that the county defines um, that actually more than 98% of people 65 and up in that region have been vaccinated. So, uh, you know, we are seeing some positive developments there. At the same time, you know, I think Hispanics are about a third of the county and have, have made up Uh, you know, a larger number, disproportionate number, maybe 50 to 60% of cases, and uh, I believe around 45% of COVID deaths and are underrepresented in terms of overall vaccinations right now, maybe 20-something percent of folks who've been vaccinated in San Diego are Hispanic or Latino. So, you know, we're seeing progress in some ways, but some evidence that, uh, you know, we're not quite there yet.
0: And finally, I know this is um, not... Around the corner, but what is what is the yellow tier? Uh, the next tier is the yellow tier. What does that entail? Uh, you know, what might open up, and how soon might we get there?
1: Yeah. So just to remind everybody, we we are still in the red tier. We might get to orange next week, as as I was talking about, which means we would have to stay in orange for another three weeks. So presumably, we would not get to the yellow tier until late April, early May. Uh, just to kind of give you a sense of the timelines that we're talking about. Uh, But, you know, if, yeah, let's say if we are able to get to uh, the yellow tier, you know, we know that uh, gyms could open up at 50% capacity. They can only open up at 25% capacity at Orange and currently 10% uh, restaurants, which currently can fill up 25% of indoor seats uh, those can move to 50 percent in orange um, and actually that that stays the case in in yellow uh, you know if we think about bars for example if we get to orange bars can open outdoors but they can't open indoors if we get to yellow bars can open indoors with a maximum of 25 percent capacity so it, you know, you can kind of get a sense that it, it, it wouldn't quite bring us back to, you know, 2019 levels of what's open and to what degree it can be open. But it, it's just another step forward in terms of, um, you know, to what degree the economy can be open and you know what we can be doing in our day-to-day life.
0: Yeah. At what point does the tier system go away? Will we ever go back to life in 2019?
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's possible. I think, you know, Paul Sisson, our healthcare reporter, has spoken with the state and I believe he asked them a question about whether the whole tier system could be scrapped by the summer. And and I I don't believe they explicitly said no. So I I think depending on the pace of vaccination, obviously depending on what's going on in in our hospitals and and where our case numbers are at, uh, yeah, I I, I don't expect that we'll be talking about purple, red, orange, and yellow forever or necessarily uh, throughout the entirety of, of, of this year so it's hard to put an exact date to it because the state has not put an exact date to it and the county hasn't either but but i think the whole idea of the system was to make sure that hospitals weren't being overwhelmed and case numbers were low so if we get to a point where really we aren't worried about those things on a day-to-day basis then uh, then this whole system will probably you know come to an end in the coming months
0: Now let's turn to opinion. Charles T. Clark is a columnist at the UT writing about the intersection of identity and civic life. So this week you wrote about Evanston, Illinois, the first place in the U.S. to start a reparations program for African-Americans. Um, it is about housing, but can you tell me a little more about what they're doing?
2: Yeah, yeah. So it's it's interesting. You know, broadly, Evanston kind of drew headlines because they officially adopted Um, kind of this reparations package. They set aside $10 million um, that they're going to generate using funds that come in through the cannabis tax out there. Um, Now, specifically for the first initiative they've kind of rolled out, it looks at housing specifically. Um, They're going to provide $400,000, predominantly made available in $25,000 grants for home improvement or home ownership, um, and a lot of the reason it seems that they focused on housing initially is because Evanston uh, had a history of kind of housing discrimination um, that continued well into the 80s, I believe. So it seems like that's a big part of why they emphasized that part of the program first. Um, but keep in mind, right, that this is $400,000 out of what's expected to be 10 million. There's going to be more initiatives to come. But this, as far as we're aware, is the first time we've seen any kind of government um institution at any level in the U.S. adopt a reparations program specifically related to African-Americans.
0: And what has the response been from Black residents? Are are they happy with this so far?
2: Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. Um, So Evanston itself isn't exactly all that diverse, um, which personally I think is part of why it was so striking to see them be the ones leading the way in this, right? Yeah, like they're a suburb of Chicago but they are not Chicago, right, which I think we all know is a more diverse community whereas Evanston, I think last I saw, it was like maybe 11% of residents are black. Um so definitely not, you know, the majority or even probably that significant of a minority there. Um but broadly what we've seen from really, you know, predominantly black advocates um who've worked in the space advocating for reparations for a long time. Um For the most part, it's been positive. Um, I think people are excited to see the conversation move beyond, oh, we're just talking about the idea of doing reparations to specifically how a program would actually be implemented. Um, At the same time though, you did have some advocates who raised concerns about calling this specifically reparations, right? Because reparations in and of themselves To many advocates, they argue it has to come from the federal government, because predominantly it's the federal government that was responsible for slavery um, and upholding a lot of the, you know, what was more or less apartheid in this country, you know, well into the 70s. So, yeah, it's a mixed bag.
0: Yeah, it is interesting that a municipality went ahead and went for this. You wrote in your column a little bit about the sort of um, public appetite for an apology. What did you learn about that? Where do people stand for the federal government giving an apology to African-Americans for slavery?
2: Yeah, so that I always like to bring up that kind of polling um, because I actually think it's to me the most fascinating and telling about us as a country and where we're at. Um, so, specifically, you know, the polling, it, there's very clear racial lines here. Um, so, the act of issuing a formal apology is something the US has done at different points in history. Um, oftentimes, in other cases where they've paid reparations to other groups, they have done this, um, be them uh, Native Americans, Japanese Americans who were interned during World War II. Uh, some of our uh, the Native Hawaiians also. Um, now granted all of those reparations programs were flawed, which is important to keep in mind. But at a bare minimum the. US government did include with those reparations a formal apology. For some reason, the U.S has never formally apologized for slavery um, or upholding slavery. There's been various times where the House and Senate have each considered resolutions. Um, to apologize, but they've never done anything jointly. Um, And it was interesting because polling last year uh, kind of had this fascinating thing where they posed a question to people about one reparations, would you support cash reparations or not? And then their other question was, would you support the US government issuing a formal apology for slavery? Black residents overwhelmingly supported it. Um, Like you're getting up into the 80, 90% territory Latino residents overwhelmingly supported it, Um, you know, well over 60%. White residents, for some reason, uh, were reluctant. As far as a apology for slavery though, uh, I believe it was only 35% of white Americans support the U.S. government issuing a formal apology for slavery. And the reason that I find that so striking to me is if you can't support a formal apology, which is a largely meaningless gesture, right? It's a pretty empty thing. It costs you nothing. There's no money behind it. You're just acknowledging a fault, what I would argue is one of the most, you know, egregious human rights violations of the history uh, of mankind. Um, And only 33% of you white people think that it's worth doing that. That, to me, tells me that your issue with reparations isn't necessarily about any tangible thing related to reparations or giving, you know, additional support to make amends to to Black Americans. That tells me that your issue is you just don't want to acknowledge that there was anything that happened. Um, and I think it is quite telling as we look at this conversation and how we continue to move forward in the reparations discussion.
0: So, what do you think uh, is the takeaway here for California? What should the state keep in mind as we move forward with this conversation?
2: Yeah, so, you know, I think the thing that really struck me about what Evanston did and kind of this whole discussion um, of the housing component in particular, personally, I, I, I tend to not think housing should be the primary goal. Um, you know, I I mentioned in there some other experts who kind of spoke to the fact that fundamentally what I think a lot of people who advocate for reparations, what they'd like to see, right, is a closing of the wealth gap between black and white families. Um, black families have, you know, lagged behind monumentally um, when it comes to net worth and things like that. And and kind of their cases that, you know, housing or giving someone, you know, a grant to improve their house really doesn't do anything lasting um i tend to agree i tend to think things like uh tax breaks you know lasting tax breaks uh scholarships um business grants are something i really would like to see um because i think that's a way to create more generational wealth and something that people can build on um you know i've heard some other i know there's some other advocates including some of the ones i to. They still fundamentally would like to see uh, direct cash payments, um, which, to be frank, I, I whether you think it's a good idea or not, I think we got to be real that that's never going to happen in this country. <laughs> um, you know, it's taken us 200 some years to even get to the point where we're seeing any kind of reparations program instituted. I do not see any way certainly in my lifetime that enough Americans and particularly white Americans will be okay with the federal government sending cash directly to black Americans. Um, I think that's a non-starter so I don't think it's worth kind of wasting the time there. But I do think, again, things like tax breaks, business grants, scholarships, um, you know, professional development kind of things. I think those are much more palatable to people, and they still achieve a lasting impact. So, Hopefully California, you know, as we move in here and folks like Monica Montgomery and others are on the task force kind of coming up with ideas, um, those are certainly things I'd like to see explored in depth.
0: Yeah, and and finally, where, where does this stand currently, this conversation at the state level?
2: So for California, where we're currently at still is that we have a task force that is still in the process of being formed. They do have to have their first meeting before I believe June 1st or June 30th. Um, so we're certainly moving toward there. I think you know it, it seems pretty safe to say that we're still probably a year out or so before we even get any kind of formal proposals for how this could work. Um, But that's kind of where we're at is still in the early stages for us, which I think is also something that's important to keep in mind as we look at what happened in Evanston is that it's a starting point, right? It's going to be imperfect, um, but it's nice that we're there, right? And we're starting to have these conversations in a much more real way.
0: You can read these stories online at SanDiegoUnionTribune.com. I'm Christy Totten, host of the San Diego News Fix. Thanks for listening.